Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. I love role-playing games like D&D and board games like Clue. Clue, for example, a game about solving mysteries like who killed the colonel with a dirty pipe in the code library? Where was the JavaScript killed with a JNDI? But where the movie Clue gave us mystery and comedy and an amazing cast, including Tim Curry. AppSec just gives us a cast of CVEs with curious names and patching SLAs that far too many people laugh at. Which means this week we talk with Farshad Abbasi from Forward Security about making security champions successful, finding useful tools, and getting application security right. In the news segment, hitting the Linux kernel with a dirty pipe. See, that was foreshadowing. Warping Azure automation for cross-account access. Traversing Azure logic for root access. Storming UPS devices with TLS errors and more. Find a motive and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Imperva protects applications wherever they live and at the pace of development. From securing applications at runtime to protecting APIs in any cloud environment, only Imperva offers a unified solution across edge, application, and data to help you achieve more and save money. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web applications at securityweekly.com forward slash Imperva. This is episode 188, recorded March 14th, 2022. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Happy Pi Day. How are you? Happy Pi Day. It is Happy Pi Day. I did not, how, how irrational of you to uh, bring that up for us. Um, <clears throat> while John is calculating how many digits of Pi he can recall, I want to remind all of our listeners to not miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list at a Discord server to chat with us right now and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Farshad Abbasi is an innovative technologist with over 24 years of experience in software design and development, network and system architecture, cybersecurity management, and technical instruction. With a keen interest in security from the start, he has become an expert in that aspect of computing and communication over the last 18 years. He started Forward Security in 2018 with a mission to provide world-class information security services, particularly in the application and cloud security domains. Prior to creating Forward, he was a senior member of HSBC Group's IT security team, with the most recent positions being the Principal Global Security Architect and Head of IT Security of the Canadian Division. Farshad is continuing an 18-year stint as an instructor at BCIT, where he shares his passion for information and network security, helping others build a career in this exciting field. He's also the security correspondent for CFAX Radio, B-Size Vancouver, a Mars board member, Vancouver OWASP chapter lead, a CISSP designate, and a UBC CS alumnus. And wow, what a long list of stuff you've been doing. So uh, with totally. that, I've got to say hello, Farshad. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for reading all that. It is a lot of stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, but it's good. And I think it um it it, it shows a, a bit of a journey, if you will, and uh, possibly a bit of a reason why you would like us, uh, speaking us as the industry, 
to do application security right. So if we're going to do application security right, maybe um, maybe wh where should we start? Should we talk about what's been doing wrong or maybe what we could be doing better? Uh, help us figure out where maybe what, the, the paths that, that maybe haven't been succeeding these last 18 to 20 years. Absolutely, absolutely. It's always good to, uh, it's always good to look at the gaps and uh, you know, where things could be made better and then have that conversation um, accordingly. And, and, and you know, looking at, uh, as you mentioned, I've been in this industry for quite a while. I think I started, well, it depends on how far you want to go back. As if you want to go back in terms of when I started programming, that goes back to when I was about 13. So sometime in the mid 80s, let's say. <laughs> nice. um, and, uh, and, and you know, but if you want to talk about professionally, you know, finished CompSci back in the late 90s in the dot-com, the heat of the dot-com era, and went right into building software, you know, web applications right at the time. In fact, my first uh, my first job involved building an e-commerce platform. And at the time, you had no payment gateways. Uh, there were no modular shopping carts. Um, you know, it was sort of JavaScript had just come out. Java was fairly new. And the idea was like, hey, you got you need it. You go build it yourself. And over those years that I worked as a software developer, I learned a lot about um, software, but also a lot about security because the stuff that I built um, ended up getting hacked uh, here and there. <laughs> so I learned the hard lessons and uh, decided to pivot to help others not make those mistakes that I made as a software developer, as a person who built systems. But oftentimes what you see is that uh, not enough people have made that crossover. And there are a lot of, there's a, application security historically didn't get the attention that it deserved. Um, and, and also particularly partly is because uh, there weren't maybe as many applications that are that were exposed to the internet. Uh, nowadays, um, everybody's got a digital transformation program, and and you know especially COVID has really helped accelerate the rate of um, digital transformation. So you, we've got a lot more applications that there were before, and of course, as we always say in security, where there's a lot of something, it'll also get a lot of attention from attackers, right? It's the classic PC versus Windows argument in terms of security. There's always been a lot of Windows. Um, you know, for people to hack and not as many Macs. And now that there's more Macs, you see more Mac exploits and all that kind of stuff. But with uh, with applications, now there's a huge number. And and of course, attackers have more to more to attack. And and in fact, I think the Verizon data breach report from 2020 said that uh, the applica applications were made up 43% of attack vectors. Um, and the other 57 were ransomware and things, the traditional, uh, the traditional um, attack vectors. But it's pretty eye-opening to see that it's uh, it, it doubled. That was another stat. Was that in that year it doubled from the previous rate, and now it almost makes up majority. And and that that uh, you know, and then the challenge with that is not enough companies or practitioners have uh, spent time in that domain. It's still a fairly up and coming domain. In in uh, 2011, I was at a SANS event in Vegas. It was at one of those PCI training events that I the bank had sent me on, and uh, and I think the room had, there were about maybe 50 or 60 people attending that that session and the instructor asked how many people in this room have an application security program and only two of us put our hand up which was me from hsbc and someone from citibank and it was really eye-opening to see that not many companies had AppSite programs not, not all of them understood it and even the ones that had it like us at hsbc some of the top level management didn't really understand what it is that we were doing and in fact that program when, when there was a reorganization and the previous management left, that program fell apart because again, there was not enough buy-in or understanding at the top level. And then, you know, they, they, that program fell apart in the, in around 2012, 2013. And then fast forward to, you know, around 2016, 2017, where they're adopting DevOps and they wanted to re, uh, you know, re, re stand up that whole application security program that we had previously. So, you know, it's, it's, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, lack of understanding, both from 
from the security industry as well as the buyers, you know, the people that are building software. Now, I, I definitely want to come back to that program, both on that that aspect of it sort of dwindled and went away, but then it resurfaced around 2016, as you're describing. But um, you know, you were just you also start off talking about your history, and you know, you're doing development early on. Sure, you had maybe some uh, vulnerabilities in the code that you're writing. But, um, you know, you had a top 10 list, at least to reference, right, to keep you secure. And my history started off not on the development side, but on the pen testing side. So if you were doing the development, you had this top 10 list and I was just going around pen testing everything. You know, what did we do wrong that application security is still such a mess for today? What did we do wrong that is still a mess today? Um, <laughs> we name the one we thing. We half an hour, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. I think it just comes because it's so new. I think it just needs yeah. a bit of time. I think that's that's the thing is that it needs a bit of time and it needs a bit of, it needs to mature. Now, you know, when we compare it to say network security, right? How long have we been doing network security? In fact, like for as long as I can remember, I mean, you know, the, the moment that I got my first internet connection back in the mid '90s, there was a whole aspect of like, how do you do to secure it and firewalls and hey, you got to go get a you know a firewall for your network and all that kind of stuff. That stuff has been around for a long time. The practitioners understand it, the buyers understand it. With AppSec, we know we never really had that problem. You know, apps were always inside the corporate network and relatively secure. Now that the game has changed, right? The corporate network is not really safe anymore. It hasn't been that way for a long time. And in fact, I remember at HSBC, we uh, we were adopting zero trust back in 2010. You know, and it, it, that was one of the benefits of working at a really large company with a lot of money is that you got to work on really you know new concepts, cutting edge technologies, and ideas that you know I see late, way later on that other companies or industries adopting. But why did we go to zero trust way back then? Is because you know, we realized that, hey, inside, outside is almost the same, right? I, you know, in the old days, the, 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 the teams would argue that, hey, I'm putting this application inside. Why do I need to encrypt that, you know, the communication or have TLS? And then, you know, the, 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 game, the game has changed is now that developers just send malware to one of our team employees, employee opens it up and somehow the protections don't work. And then now the malware can pivot from inside the network and really inside and outside are fairly the same, especially with a really large, large enterprises. If you have a company that has 200,000 employees around the world, that's pretty much its own little internet or a little, little world, worldwide <laughs> web. So, you know, it's, it's almost a public network when you get to be a really, really, really large network. Um, so yeah, lots of challenges, lots of challenges. And I don't, I don't think it's that we've intentionally been doing things wrong. I just think that it's just hasn't had enough time to mature. And you know what they say in security, um, you know, uh, things have to stand the test of time uh, for them to, uh, for them to be secure. The interesting thing about AppSec is, or about the way you're phrasing that, I, I sort of agree with you, but as a field, we're moving so quickly. I mean, what a develop, what the cool hip thing is for a developer to work on today is completely different than what it was, you know, three months ago, definitely six months ago. How, It'd be interesting to think about how do you how do you pair those two together with you've you've got something which needs to take us a um, I'll say an organic uh, process of maturation, combine that with the the shiny object of, of the day. Yeah, uh, it's true, uh, but there's also the other side. So yes, technology changes. Like for example, let's take APIs, right? You know. Uh, four or five years ago, it was all rest, rest, rest. Now it's like GraphQL and, you know, things are changing constantly. Yeah, that is true. But as a programmer, one thing that was proven to me is once you kind of learn the concepts, you know, once you kind of know one type of programming, if you're doing object oriented versus functional versus whatever, you can apply the same concepts and learn a new la really language really quickly. So mm -hmm. I'm going to apply that analogy to security. If you understand the concepts of 
security app, like, you know, th thread modeling, if you're able to take something in thread modeling, thread model it and look at it from the perspective of like, hey, here's where the data comes in, here's where the data travels, here are the particular touch points, and here's where something someone could do something bad. If you step okay. up, step step into that 20,000 foot view and look at security or application security from that perspective, it doesn't really matter what that at the, at the micro level or at the ground level, whether technology has changed or not, whether it's a GraphQL API or REST API. Yes, it does matter when you try to go in and, and find the specific security issues there, but you should be able to take a user story that you're developing and thread model it and come out with the abuse cases and figure out how to secure that. That is, you know, once you gain that skill set, that is something that's applicable across different architectures or different technology stacks. And then, of course, for the more granular level, like, you know, I, I'll use the REST versus GraphQL uh, API example. That's something that, you know, there's lots of uh, smart folks out there putting out, uh, you know, documents, articles, or papers. So with a little bit of education, you can brush up on those uh, those nuances. And that's exactly what I do as a practitioner to keep up with that, these types of things. I reapply those conceptual uh, patterns, if you will, which totally, you know, uh, totally patterns and practices, which are applicable across technologies. And then I'll go quickly learn the nuances that, that are applicable at the, at the bottom level. When you're describing that, there's an aspect of the, the, the threat modeling that you brought up. And I, I'm going to posit that the developers are going to be a good understanding of that cutting edge. What is the new, you know, what are the new microservice uh, architectures they want to adopt in GCP versus AWS? Well, how would they do that zero, the, the concept of zero trust in terms of trust relationships between and complex IAM policies in the cloud? But you also brought up that aspect of sort of that abstracted threat modeling. But uh, there I want to tie into who does the threat modeling, especially when we're talking about getting application security right and being able to do it at a large organization. Because I can imagine even at HSBC probably had a, you know, a, a few dozen thousands of apps, I'm going to guess. And I'm going to also guess that you were not able to threat model every one. So when we get into that idea of we need to understand them and apply those principles, who is the we in this conversation and how do we get that group of we uh, to to be able to do threat modeling effectively? It's a really good question, Mike. Um, it's different for large enterprise than for a small company, for sure. And 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 let's 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 go with a large enterprise example. Um, you know, me at HSBC or my colleague uh, Jeevan, who uh, co-leads co the the OWASP Vancouver chapter with me. He works at Twilio, and he's going through a similar thing as well. In those large enterprises, you do have a core AppSec team, right? So in us, with us at HSBC, um, you know, our global AppSec team was about twenty people. Then we also had a bunch of sort of more uh, analyst level practitioners. We had about two hundred of them to support about a thousand applications. But what we did there is we worked in mentorship capacity. So the, the core AppSec team would, uh, we, we rolled out training first and foremost. So in fact, um, you know, I built this threat modeling training and went globally um, you know, and rolled it out and did lots and lots of training and made sure that they had that foundational uh, uh, background. And then what we did is we worked in mentorship capacities that we would attend, uh, say, you know, once a week, uh, a, a security standup or an hour meeting where they would bring in certain user stories uh, that were selected based on a filter list and then we would thread model with them so that they learn how this works. And, you know, so combined with the training and the mentorship and the ongoing work that we're doing, at some point you would see that transition where, you know, we would just step back and say, okay, you know what, today you do thread modeling on that particular user story. And, and, and then and eventually over a period of six months to, to 12 months, the developers would start to actually do that themselves and get in the habit of uh, being able to identify uh, the, the 
uh, user stories that have, had particular security concern and threat model them. Another thing that we would do to help them is uh, give them an initial list that they could use to filter the user stories because not everything requires threat modeling. Um, you know, if you have not all not all the requirements of the user stories that they're building are are made equal. Uh, so that also really helped hone in on ones that uh, would have security concern. And the questions that would be asked were fairly simple. You know, hey, does this use, user story involve handling uh, data that falls into your higher classification levels, or is this uh, an external fin facing function, or is this handling some sort of a security function and and things like that um, uh, to support them and make that a more efficient process. What did you see being most successful in the threat modeling in terms of just expressing the threat model or considering evaluating risk of an item? And here I'm thinking more about specifically just risk and trying to avoid either developers from basically being too hand wavy at a too high level abstraction to the other end of the spectrum of being where they say, well, assume the same origin policy has been broken. What are we going to do to protect our, you know, front, you know, our client facing app in that situation? There's got to be a, you know, a, a nice middle in there where they're doing something risk-based effective. And I'm, I hope I'm thinking because you come from a bank that, you know, talking about this risk aspect is going to resonate a bit. Yeah. And maybe I just want to make sure that I understood the question. So are you talking about what do we do to make it so that it's not so hand wavy and so high level, but also not too low? Is that what you're? What yeah. You're so I guess maybe what's what's the the right amount of guidance so that as a you know as a appsec person you can step in with the training, but then also step away and still have some confidence that developers are going to be thinking about good risk focused threat models versus just checking a box against uh, uh, against a checklist or saying ah you know I'm going to walk I'm going to make fun of the OWASP top ten a little bit here like ah uh, well, here are the th top three of the OWASP top ten we don't do this we don't do this we don't do this or I've considered cross site scripting. Therefore, I'm done. Just sort of, you know, trying right. to flesh out what that, what maybe, maybe what really, really is what I'm asking. What does some good training look like, or how did you approach that training to have confidence that that would be successful? That they're doing the right thing. Yeah, and then of course, there's the the threat modeling can be applied at two different levels as well, right? You can apply it at the high level where you're just looking at architecture and you know the mm -hmm. uh, the the hops across the data path and things like that, or you can also zoom in and mm -hmm. and look at a particular function that they're building, and in order to make sure that uh, how do I how do I know that they're successful? I mean, of course, it's sort of a uh, it's not a uh, it's more of an art than a science, if you will. It's really working with them, <laughs> and as you're mentoring yeah. them, uh, you know, you start to take off the training wheels, and you're like, okay, today I'm not going to come up with the threat scenarios, and I want you know, you just sit back and say, today's your turn, and then what you know, and observe them how they do it, and you guide them and and try to steer them in the right direction. But again, providing a framework, providing that uh, structure that they can work within and with the right uh, training is important. What I mean by that is that. Uh, like you said, like how do they think? Oh, I've got cross site scripting. Am I done here? Um, you know that that's a really good point. If they don't have a framework or some structure, so then they know they've covered the what it needs to be covered, then they'll fail. One of the things we've done uh, when we work with clients, uh, we've done that. We've essentially built this high level, um, what I'd like to call a threat modeling uh, diagram and lucid chart. You know, it, it shows like a typical application, and then on the sidebar, we've got a list of. Um, um, unauthenticated attacks followed by a list of authenticated attacks. Ah. And in, in the list of, because, you know, attackers have always got to start from an unauthenticated position, right? And then, well, if you're starting at an unauthenticated position, what are the things that you can do? Well, if, you know, you can try a SQL injection on the logging page. You can do a whole bunch of the, those things. So we get the developer to go through those systematically and say, do any of these, uh, can, can any of these be possible uh, in, in an unauthenticated context? And then if they answer any of them to be yes, 
Then they get to further look at the authenticated list. It's like, okay, great. You said that it's possible to do SQL injection on the you know, username and password on the login page. Is that could either be the end of that threat scenario. You, you know, you get your SQL injection, you get everything you want, or it could lead into another. Uh, so from there they can they can pivot and do more. So then they go into the list, they consider the list of authenticated attacks that we've listed down below. So that really helps people that are particularly those that are new uh, to think of it in a structured way. Also, using the stride uh, classification model also helps because then we get the developers to systematically go through each of those categories and think about it. Like, is there spoofing attack? Is there tampering, repudiation, and information disclosure, and so on and so forth? And by just pausing for you know x number of seconds on each of those categories and giving it some thought um, it makes them not forget things right so having those systems really help uh, bring consistency particularly for uh, those that are newer to the process yeah i think i've i must admit that stride is is dusty in my brain but i still appreciate it from the perspective of having a lingua franca being able to, as you said if we say spoofing we at least have a rough understanding or have a way of describing this is what we mean by spoofing as a type of attack, um, repudiation, all, all of those aspects. Where I want to turn that though is from the DevOps perspective side now, the, the developer's perspective. When you have those conversations, and this also goes back to I think sort of the theme I think that John kind of touched on a bit. Do you see or have you seen the developers come back and say, well, look, we're just we're using React. We don't really care about cross-site scripting or we're using an ORM. SQL injection isn't a big deal or we're using some type of just key value data store. So we don't have classic, quote unquote, SQL injection. And I'm, where I'm going with this sort of question is I'm curious how these conversations in terms of doing application security right have had that feedback loop from the developers as well in the sense of, well, Rather than go through this checklist, I have to spend, you know, I'm supposed to spend my day coding. Maybe I should be coding on something different, something better, a security pattern to implement. Have the, you know, have you been able to mature into those types of targeting attack classes as well um, when you have yes. these conversations? Yeah. And tell us yeah, a little bit about that. Yeah. A really good question. I think you packed a whole bunch of different uh, items in that one question. The, the one thing I'll start by saying is you asked, you know, hey, I'm using React as is cross-site scripting relevant to me or I'm using an ORM is mm -hmm. SQL injection relevant to me, right? Those conversations need to be also systematic. Um, you know, how do we go, like, do we have a list of what are you doing to address SQL injection, cross-site scripting, et cetera, et cetera, so that the developer can provide those answers? And the answer is, yes, we do. It's OWASP's application security verification standard, right? ASVS is a great standard that can be used both by developers and by the security team to figure out um, you know, if the application's got the right level of security controls, right? I mean, at HSBC, we had our own application security standard. Um, you know, we were a large company and we built something. But if I look back now, if I were to do that again, I would have just adopted ASVS. It essentially has a list of all those things, like you know, for cross-site scripting, SQL injection, what are you doing? And then the developer can take that list in the, in, in the beginning. And often this is what we do with our clients when we first engage. Um, you know, if we engage with them on a long-term basis, which is often we do, they'll bring us in on a 12 to 24 month basis to help them roll out an application security program or DevSecOps program. Uh, one of the first things we do is say, here's ASVS, here's all the controls, you can go do a self-assessment. Take this and figure out where you stand against the least, this list of these controls. And they'll do exactly that. They'll go through and say, oh yeah, this one says for SQL injection, guess what? I've got an ORM and I'm gonna pass that. So I, you know, they can take all 280 plus controls 
and do that. Or they can take a subset of ASVS, like level one has about 130 plus controls, which is usually what we recommend as a starting point. And, and once they've done that self-assessment, they'll be like, uh, pretty aware of where their gaps are, like whether they have an ORM or not to address that issue. And, and then we tell them, okay, now the ones that you haven't implemented, uh, take those controls and sprinkle them over the next several sprints, create an epic, um, you know, in your, throw them in your backlog, create a security epic, and then pick up a few of those things every sprint if you can. Try to chew on that security requirements as you go. But then in terms of patterns also, that's another thing we've worked with uh, with organizations because they look at us and they say, well, you know, there's like, you know, even ASS level one has about 130 controls. Are there patterns? Are there groups of things that we can do? Or make it, or can we make a library or a tool that addresses a group a number of these uh, controls? And the answer is absolutely yes. There are a whole bunch of the SES controls that simply require various headers to be injected or be present. Mm -hmm. You know, we've worked with teams where they make a library and it just, you know, they can use that centrally for, with all their microservices that'll provide that. Or for example, at HSBC, we, you know, we use an API gateway. API gateways are, are excellent because you can central security and you can then enforce a lot of security policies. So I worked with the, with the, the with the HSBC teams and we came up with, uh, you know, half a dozen patterns. And then we created uh, we created a bunch of uh, plugins for our API gateway that could address those security patterns centrally. So uh, I hope that answers your question, uh, there, Mike. It it does. And I'm going to now pack another you know 50 questions to give you 30 <laughs> seconds to answer on. So That's be, great. Be, I love it. Uh, but uh, no, actually, I do. Want, it's, it's almost like it's time to play choose your own adventure because what you're just saying at the air, at the end there um, put my brain on to, to two different paths. One is also maybe the first one. I'll just start off with the, the people side of things because you are talking about we are having the conversations with the development team doing that. I kind of want to unpack that a little bit too in the sense of how is, is, is this still just like a application security person that you've dropped in as the, um, you know, the, the consigliere, if you will, to the, to the development team, or are we touching on like that security champions model and, you know, how, so that you can, you as a single person, uh, can actually scale out better. And here we're actually talking about scaling with people, which you know, does run into its own challenges, its own problems. But this is the people side I want to ask about first. How, how did those conversations, who was having those conversations and how did you set them up so that they could be scaling pretty effectively? That's a really good point. So first of all, let me tell you the people, the people side of AppSec is quite difficult. I've been in the hiring position in this world for about a decade now. And uh, it's a long, no matter where I've worked with big budget or small budget, it's a long uh, cycle to hire an AppSec individual, <laughs> and and uh, you know it's a challenge that you know that a lot of organizations face. And you know, and, and let's go back to that AppSec to the software development team, right? Your DevOps or Agile or whatever uh, uh, sort of a structure that you have. Uh, that team can't be expected to all of a sudden go from zero to you know fully having AppSec in their environment. Mm -hmm. They'll need some sort of guidance and mentorship. <laughs> so where are you going to get that from? Well, if you're a large company like HSBC. You go and you know hire a bunch of uh, individuals, form an AppSec team that's a central center of excellence, and then they federate their services to the people on the ground. So the appropriate model there is that you know you're, within your software teams, you appoint a liaison. Let's call them a security champion. That they're expected to be the interface between your core team that's federating that knowledge and then and then disseminating it centrally. So then the core AppSec team spends you know each. Each of the team members spends a, a portion of their time, and it's not a. This is not a full time job. We tried that at HSBC. We tried assigning full time application security team um, uh, consultants 
two development teams, but there were two challenges. Number one, we already know there's not enough of them. And then for that, HSBC was like, well, let's let's only focus on flagship applications. So let's take our tier one applications. And then then there are enough AppSec folks, right? And I mean, we said, fair enough. But when we did assign those AppSec folks to those teams, the, 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 they were, the feedback was that we're, there's not enough for us to do. It's a typical development team doesn't have enough work on a day-to-day basis for that AppSec person to be busy. So it was sort of like, okay, well, it doesn't really make sense to allocate this whole person that there's not enough of them to a team that's not going to need this person 100% day-to-day. So that the federated model makes a lot of sense for that reason. So you scale that back and you say, you know what, you AppSec person, you allocate 10% of your time to work with that liaison and mentor them. And then in that mentorship capacity, what does that mean? You know, you know, so if we want to go to the ground level, what that means is we would typically have a, uh, you know, an hour a week stand up or ha- or 30 minutes where it just acts as a checkpoint to make sure all the security bits and pieces are moving along. And then a, a, a one hour meeting once a week where the team brings in any items that are worth reviewing that they haven't been able to do. And then, so for example, they ran a bunch of tools and, you know, they weren't quite sure what some of the, what the results mean, or maybe they determined that they require further review, or maybe there's a bunch of new user stories that are about to go to the next sprint and they've been flagged as requiring security review based on a filter that was provided by that central team. Those are all the things that that team member can do, the, the, the dedicated AppSec uh, team member, to help that liaison and that team learn security and mentor them to be there and threat model with them in those weekly meetings. And then once there's been enough mentorship, then they can slowly change that equation and step back. And you know, there's a um, you know that that's so that federation model works well, but it doesn't work well if you're a small company. Like right? if you're a large company, great. You go get that that uh, central AppSec team that can mentor your security champions and run it and federate and all that great stuff. But what do you do when you're a small company? Let's say you're a company that you only have 10 developers, right? Mm-hmm. That's a tough position to be in. And, and those companies will go and advertise uh, you know, an AppSec position, but they will often fail for two reasons. A, they're a small company. A lot of app, They won't have the budget to compete with that large company that's going to pay a lot more for that AppSec individual. Yeah. Uh, B, they'll hire that AppSec individual, and then there's no career path. So this company, let's say they're a software development company. They're building health tech software. What do they know about application security? Almost nothing. So they bring this person. This person has no career path, no one to learn from, no one to bounce ideas or be peer review things. And then because they get lonely, they'll leave that company. So there's your AppSite program. You spent all this time and money hiring this person and they left. And then, of course, the other challenge is that you probably don't, if you're a six to 10 person company, you probably don't need a hundred dedicated AppSite person that you're paying a lot of money for. So in those those cases where you're a small company, you're better off going to a consulting company and getting them to support your AppSec program and help you roll it out. And, you know, for example, like with me, I've done this for at least 12 years. How many times have I been down this path and all the lessons learned, right? I mean, if I'm going to paint my place, I could go and paint my place, but I don't paint every day. It's going to take me five days to paint the wall. But if I go get a painter who does this every day, he has techniques that he could have done in an hour or two. So, so that's the difference is you bring a professional who've been down this path a million times, and then they can help transform and roll that program. And then they can then further support your, your AppSec initiative. And then now you've avoided hiring that full-time professional that's impossible to find. And your team transformed from, say, DevOps to DevSecOps with the right training and support and tools and mentorship.
Yeah, I think, and I love the attention there on also not just the role, here's what you need a person to do, but here is what a person in that role should have available to them in terms of a career path, in terms of being able to grow, and in terms of just being interested in the job as well. And I think that the, the, the reason I'm highlighting that is there's very much a subtext there of having a program that's successful over the long run, rather than either just burning people out or boring people to death for that matter. But I'm going to, we, we, I'm keeping an eye on the time. And unfortunately, we, we, we always get low because we have great conversations like this. Um, tools. So, so far, I think the only tool really I've heard you mention so far is like an API gateway. Um, so are tools a part of doing application security right? Or, you know, what, what's the role here for um, the, the tooling and automation and reaching? And the reason I'm asking is for, you know, are they effect, how do we get them to use to do how do we use them correctly to scale tools are absolutely 100 important and you know and, and basically so here's the thing right DevSecOps is or it's not a position it's not a person it's not a thing DevSecOps is about elevating how you build software so that software security is a part of it from beginning to end right from left to right part of the you know, left on the when you're designing and building right when you're operating on the right side where you're operating it and and you know those things are are quite important now when we talk about DevSecOps, that assumes that you already have a devops team there so that you can add the sec to that if you don't if you're not even devops you got to first become devops so that we can add the sec and the point there is if you want to be devops guess what part of the devops formula is automation right like devops built on top of agile and what was agile's biggest thing was was cicd right you know we all remember this back in the day agile came along and you know, this whole concept of CI/CD came along and then DevOps further built on top of that. And then, you know, if, so if you have CI/CD, that means you have automation. If you have automation, you should also benefit from it from a security perspective and, and, and you know, and, and incorporate various tools in your pipeline uh, to address security. Now, that's mostly on the left side, right? on the build side. What about on the operational side? You should also have security tooling there. Things like IAST or RASP, things that are working from inside the application. The analogy is almost like, you know, for a lot of people that are here familiar, might be familiar with traditional network security is that, you know, in the old, you know, you have IDS you put in your network, but you also have host-based IDS, right? And what do we say? What's the that pros and cons? The network-based IDS doesn't have inside visibility. So it might raise, uh, you might see a pattern based on a regular expression that, you know, in a packet, but it doesn't see if that, uh, that packet reached the server and it actually blew up the server. And a host-based IDS has got that visibility inside. It can look at logs and it can actually you know, make a better determination of what actually happened. Same kind of thing in, in, in software security, right? You can have your SaaS and you can have your SCA or your DAS tool, but they're sitting outside. They don't have context. So that's great. That's not to say that we shouldn't do them, just like in a network-based IDS, you should still have it. But when you have something like I asked or RAST, they're within inside the application. So now they have inside visibility. If you add all those things and correlate it and do it properly, you'll have a successful program. And what I mean by that is that when you add particularly those SAST and DAST or SCA type tools in your pipeline, um, you got to make sure you take the time initially to baseline them. Don't just go buy the tool and give it to your developers and, you know, it's the end of that. It's got to be rolled out appropriately with the right support and the right processes. And that initial baseline is really important because if you don't start with zero issues, um, every time your developers run it, there's going to be hundreds of issues and that's just going to grow and they're going to very quickly get tired of it. Um, they're also going to get false positive fatigue. But if you spend that time initially with the help of a professional, either consultants because you're a small company or your large company, you have an AppSec team, sitting down with them and then working through everything. So you either accept it, fix the problem or 
uh, put an exception and document the risk. And then you reach that zero level. And then from there on, when the developers are checking something in, uh, there's no problems. And if they do introduce a problem, it's something they got to fix. So you put those tools in blocking mode. And of course, things like DAS, you should never put in blocking mode. You should run those in parallel because they often take a long time. And, and again, fine tuning them and optimizing them and having someone who understands those tools, an app like AppSec professional, uh, help optimize them is quite important in the success of uh, rolling out uh, automated tooling as well. So if we go back to the idea of doing application security right, uh, looking ahead through 2022, if um, you know some of our listeners come back and say, hey, I did this one thing and it put me on a path to doing things well, uh, what, what might be that one thing or that one metric they could uh, perhaps pay attention to? If there's one thing they should do, if they're not doing regular software composition analysis or looking for vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in their packages every day, that's something they should start doing. The analogy that I make is, if I told you, hey, Mike, uh, you know, do you have antivirus on your computer or anti-malware? You're like, absolutely, I do. It's 2020. Everyone's got anti-malware on their computer. I um, mean, you know, Windows Defender comes built in with Windows, right? My next question would be like, well, do you just turn it off and turn it on once a year and then update it once a year? You're like, no, absolutely not. It's running all the time. So then the follow-up question is like, why would you do that to your applications? Because what most companies do is they do an annual pen test, and that's as much as they do for security. That's the equivalent of turning on your antivirus, anti-malware once a year and then turning it off for the rest of the year, right? You need to have constant vulnerability checking on your application. So you need to be running an SCA tool. In fact, on every pull request to figure out if you have a vulnerable package and if you have, you need to, up based on the risk or the threat model, you need to update it. I was just gonna say you need to update it, but I caught myself. And the reason I did is because not everything will have a high or medium risk. So what you should do is when you find that vulnerable, if you can update it, if it's a simple update, do it. But oftentimes an update of a package might break things. If you're in that situation where it's not simple and it breaks things, do a quick threat model and risk assessment. And if it's high or medium, then take appropriate action and update it or come up with alternative mitigating controls. But yeah, it goes back to how important threat modeling is and can be. Yeah, no, I love it. And unfortunately, ho hopefully we'll be able to do a more than just annual visit from you for these chats. This was a good one. So I want to thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. It's a long time listener. It's great to be on the show finally. Ah, that's wonderful. Well, we'll have to absolutely have to have you back. Um, also, want to thank John and thank all of our listeners who are saying hi to us in Discord right now as well. Um, we are going to take a... Oh, it also sounds like Prashad's hiring. So uh, make sure to send out a resume because it sounds like if you're in the AppSec field and looking for work, uh, he, he might be able to help there. Um, and with that final note, we're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Farshad Abbasi about building relationships between AppSec and DevOps to instill a culture of threat modeling and building software with OWASP's ASVS in mind. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella, and it's just about time for the news. But first, we'd like to welcome our new sponsor, SUS. SUS.io makes security tools for everyone. SUS's flat flat rate pricing means you can set up SCA and DAS tools for your whole team. No seat counts, no scan limits, and you never have to talk to a salesperson. SUS integrates with all common CI/CD platforms and supports most popular package managers. And thanks to SUS's open source vulnerability scanner, license management suite, and SBOM generation capability, you can get back to what you really want to be doing, coding in no time. Visit securityweekly.com slash SUS. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. 
Also, don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com slash on-demand. And wow, thanks for your uh, patience, John, to uh, sit through our, our new, uh, our, our long list of announcements and ads there because you possibly needed a little bit of extra time to to check up on the news because we've got quite a bit this week. So um, th- there is so much. Yeah, we do. Let's uh, let's talk about some vulns. But what's what's the vuln that you want to to start us off with? Ooh, um, go pick a tab at random. No, I'm not. Um, the one I got <laughs> open right now is uh, you know, uh, more vulnerabilities found in uh, Intel, ARM, and AMD mm, CPUs. Mm-hmm. So this is back to it's now being referred to as Spectra class vulnerabilities. These are vulnerabilities which, in general, um, uh. For those playing along at home, uh, modern CPUs, as the ongoing, we're always trying to figure out how to make that CPU faster, right? It's we can't just increase your clock speed anymore. Um, you can't just increase the number of cores in that in that um, in that die. Uh, this is you know they were talking about this on the the Apple um, stream last week. But so what other tricks can you do to how do you make that thing faster, right? So start doing software uh, inside the chip. Uh, in this particular case, uh, there's what happens, what's called speculative ex- execution. So there's firmware running in your CPU, which is trying to figure out, well, the last time you know we ran these three machine codes, we then went and ran this other thing. So it starts doing some, it'll actually execute both parts of that in those two cores. And then whichever way the actual if test goes, it goes and that, that result is already ready for you. So that was the original behind most of these things, you know, several years ago. Uh, um, someone over at Vusek, I'm guessing it's pronounced. Uh, they figured out, so that was a vulnerability, or the class of vulnerability. Intel put some uh, firmware in there to try and stop it. Uh, AMD the same. Um, I believe the problem we had last time is they didn't have the ability to update these firmwares very easily, and now they've sort of smart and they can. Uh, but still, with that protection in place, uh, Vusek has figured out a way to do what they're calling branch history injection. So it really just comes down to the same thing. It's it's all these all this classes, how can you fool that CPU into running a different branch of code, even if it wouldn't normally get run, right? So can you sort of game the system to get it to go and execute a bit of code, which uh, you're not actually going to run, but what happens once you're executing that other code is it's going to do a scan through memory, right? Where you could have it do that. Um, and it's doing that as a privileged, uh, privileged execution. So what that gives you at the end of the day, what all this sort of babbling and talking is, allows you to see <laughs> what is, um, you know, allows you to, to uh, leak memory, basically, that should be kernel only. So that's what's going on here. Um, when this first came out last week, it was uh, claims to be an Intel and ARM thing. Then over the week, uh, Intel was actually looking at at how, why was AMD not affected? And they're like, that's, you know, it's relatively public code. Let's go and look and see what the other guys are doing. And it turns out that AMD was affected, so they let them know. Um, and and then the, the world found out about that too. So they've got patches out for now, I believe. Um, there was a number not in this article, there's a number I saw somewhere early this morning, I can't find a link, but I think he was saying, is it their AMD or ARM? My coffee hadn't kicked in, but for one of those two CPUs, um, the performance hit with the patch is quote unquote under 10%. Man, if, if you're taking, you know, five plus percent of my CPU to, to try and minimize this type of thing from happening or to, to mitigate it from happening, that that's um, unfortunate, but it, that's sort of the cost of security, I guess. 
It's it's really interesting that the wrapped that that up on the cost of security because I think the only thing I could effectively add to the, your your great summary was the idea that this seems to be one of the, this class of attacks seems to be mm-hmm. very sensitive for our all the cloud service providers because that's a, mm-hmm. very much where you want this te- strong tenant isolation and you don't want any you know cross leaking of memory or cross cross tenant access to memory uh, by the same token. There's also, you know, we've seen implementation, effective implementations of the Spectre style attacks within JavaScript inside Chrome. And um, that's, you know, in your browser is also just another area where there's plenty of secrets in memory, just very yeah. simply as uh, cookies, for example. So, um, and, and I, th- I guess where I'm going with that is that possibly on the browser side that five percent of cpu or that performance hit maybe isn't as big a deal um although i'm i possibly don't have as many tabs open as you do john so maybe i'm misspeaking here but uh, clearly on the cloud service provider side of things 10 5 10 percent performance that translates into the costs for the end user to running those containers lambdas you know mm-hmm. running all of those workloads in the cloud so it'd be really interesting to watch how this class of vulnerabilities impacts the uh, economics um, uh, of computing. It's interesting. It'll probably, just to talk about it for a second, it's probably really going to hit um, the cloud providers, not so much where they're renting me a box, because then that that's I'm, I'm paying for that CPU if it's a virtual <clears throat> machine that I'm renting a, a, an instance. But when I'm using uh, serverless or functions where they're managing it for me, like a, a Lambda, if I'm mm-hmm. getting charged per um, CPU time and per, oh, no, I guess it would still come back on me. That's going to be interesting to see if Lambda slow down. Um, but okay, I, what my my process, what the thought I had there for a second was, if if it's um, for the more managed services, the cost might actually be exposed to the cloud provider, not to the customer. But I might not be right there, so I don't know. Fun little thought experiment. A good thought experiment. And we'll say, rather than say you might not be right, you're just uh, speculating (laughs) on this. Um, So let's actually, so there's a couple of vulns in cloud service providers. So let's switch over to them real quick. And uh, our friends over at Orca Security have been busy uh, beating up Mm -hmm. Azure still. And they found one, a vulnerability in the Azure Automation Service. And again, this is one of those types of articles that's a is a great setup because they find a vulnerability, but they also explain what is the service that they ran it in, what was a little bit of the researcher's thought process in terms of, huh, this looks interesting, and then just unfolding that this looks interesting comment into finding a uh, way to get, I think in this case, cross-account access, which is something you don't want to have happen. So... Um, Auto warp. I don't know. I don't know how much. I didn't honestly read into a lot of the technical details of this particular one because they're all nicely uh, described in there in, in the article. So I don't know, uh, John. If on you, it, you, you've played with Azure, that, anything? Isn't uh, that interesting? Um, because I did the same thing. There's another one we're going to talk about, which I, I, I did dig into, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if it's partially the gloss of of this post. But I didn't find myself, I mean, they're, they're, they talk about it, but like I didn't find myself sort of digging in and, and, and getting to the meaty parts on it. Um, it, it's a, it looks like a good write-up. I, I just, I don't know if I was um, either vulnerability out or azure out or what it was. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, I think between this one and the other one, the, the interesting thing to think about here from a either sec- well, security in general, but particularly at a, a researcher or a pen tester, 
with these cloud providers that are coming out with new products day after day after day and new function, new features in existing products, man, you have to just because you, you can't just go and pen test these things usually, right? Or you can't, you can do research, but you, you're only going to stumble over something if you just sort of, you know, sort of take a, a quick look. You have to really know these things like the other article he talks about. He's spent a ton of time in this stuff. So that that's... Um, I guess that's good and bad. It's if if you're if you've specialized in this, you you've got that specialty. But if you're trying to break into it, man, where do you start? Yeah, and that's absolutely where some of the like all the the foo goat, like the web goat, cloud goat, Kubernetes goat. I don't know how many goats there are out there, uh, yeah. but those are by design great for te- for for understanding uh, basic concepts, principles behind the the cloud security. This, the CSP cloud cloud service providers, but wow, you're you're right. Getting into here are another three uh, three new service names and icons that mm-hmm. that AWS has rolled out this week. Let alone all all of the others, and keeping up with that is interesting. And I guess part of the interesting part is just seeing how do they work, how do they how are they put together. And this is the other uh, speaking of pen testing from an article from NetSpy was they were doing some uh, review against the uh, Azure Logic apps that are basically API connections um, to to uh, set up your 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 service meshes, perhaps, yeah. or basically a service to service authentication. And this stood out to me, which once again, nice, good, good write up, but it had my magic words of a path traversal. And essentially, if you do a dot dot percent two f, which is the ASCII encoding for a slash, throw that into your resource group name. Uh, you've basically gotten the step towards game over. And to me, that stands out as just. How does a simple vulnerability like that happen? And it's a bit of a, maybe a mean question, but a bit of a rhetorical question, just in the sense of there are basics of normalize your data, then do your security checks. And whenever you're dealing with uh, paths, whether they're within the URL, whether they're within the local file system, this seems like it should really be a solved problem, as solved as much as we talk about cross-site scripting or SQL injection is. So that's my sort of, uh, it's maybe not quite a rant, it's my uh-huh. despair, it's, it's, it's something. There, there, there's there's an adjective I'm looking for. So help me out here while I try to figure out where yeah. my brain wants to go. So I, I think what was interesting about this one um, is is sort of exactly where you're you're focusing in on. So I, I have a, a tiny bit of insight um, on this, and it, this is the one. Like he, he, you know, we we're talking about he he he. As soon as I saw that dot dot, I'm like, oh, I know I might hit this one, <laughs> but. Um, uh, when he starts yeah. talking about the Swagger doc and downloading the Swagger doc and, and using that, um, so the tell there for me, um, we have this we have this functionality that I could use but I don't in Amazon's API gateway, where you upload your Swagger doc to it and it creates all the routes, um, and that the, the, so um, I'm sure Azure has something like this, but the generally the, the classic the concept of a API gateway for those out there who don't know is. Um, it, it's sort of a proxy. It's something you put in front of your your serverless, or it could be your servers, right? That you have like a, a set of uh, APIs routes for your APIs, um, along with the parameters, and you know when you need authentication or um, you know different things like that, you can configure. But in, you can either pointy clicky go and configure each one of these stupid things by hand. We use CDK. You can do it in Terraform or you know all these different things. Um, but the other way for someone who's not using a um, and you can probably, well, it probably doesn't matter if you're doing pointy clicky or not. You can upload your, like I said, your Swagger doc or open API doc, which is a, um, 
uh, JSON, no, sorry, YAML-based, or it can go either way, YAML or JSON-based document, which de- defines all your APIs. Um, we've probably talked about it before, but you're able, once you have that document, you can um, either generate HTML from it, so you have like really neat, pretty uh, um, uh, documentation along with the ability to test um, and try stuff out, and then you can also generate clients And I think right now about 30 different languages. But um, the point being here is if that's what they're doing and they're just uploading that in there, that means they might not have the protections on the application code itself behind. So what he's really doing with this by um, using the dot dot slash as a resource group name is he is bypassing the, uh, the validator in the API gateway. Um, but then it gets back to the code where he's not validating, which is, or they're not validating. Uh, and that's, there's, again, to sort of explain out a tiny bit what's going on there, what could be going on. Um, if you do this in the API gateway world in, in Amazon and you have a Lambda, you would have to Lambda without any routing in it. Um, it there, without giving away too much, there's other ways of doing that where you actually could have routers, you could have URL routers in your Lambdas, um, and then they're actually routing further off what's going on in the API gateway. Um, so that's, that's my guess is what he found. Um, and it comes down to a little bit of that. You can't trust the tools too much, right? It, it's because <laughs> really what happens in the situation is you're trusting that that third party gateway to do the correct thing for you. But in this case, that didn't happen. So, yeah. So and so we all cry and feel assured that 20 years from now, we'll still have a job security within applicant within AppSec. <laughs> But um, maybe one or two more Volns. Then we'll. There's a couple articles I think talk about the, uh, the the meta commentary, if you will, about Voln finding. So I think we have a good narrative unfolding here. But one, of course, uh, dirty pipe. This is one that is uh, a riff off of the dirty cow Voln, name wise, from 2016, uh, and it is. Uh, a gnarly bug within the the Linux kernel, and this particular write-up is really fun write-up. So, it, and it comes from a developer trying to debug a debug an issue within some logging software on their system, and they saw that hey, every once in a while these you know the the logging gets corrupted. I've got these tickets, this other ticket, another ticket, another ticket about this corrupted log file. What's going on? And so it is a really neat way of just that, rather than the researcher angle of, you know, security researcher angle of trying to find a vulnerability, this is the developer angle of the debugging process. And they walk through about saying, well, it's usually never a kernel bug, but wait, maybe this is a kernel bug. They write up two, they, they, they talk about writing up two programs to just dump a whole lot of A's, whole lot of B's through this pipe mechanism to see that, ah, yes, they've, they've worked it down to the simplest possible reproduction step to, uh, to find that, in fact, there is a vulnerability here in how the uh, Linux kernel is handling, uh, basically handling state, I think, is, is, is one of the ways to, to say it within this uh, data coming in from the pipe. And the, mostly the reason I really wanted to, to highlight this is that last uh, week, uh, John, you and I sort of talked about looking at the fixes for vulnerabilities. And we looked at a fix for a vulnerability that was maybe uh, 10 or so lines of code. In this case, the fix is literally a one line of code. Uh, it's, it's in two places technically, but it's just initializing a variable to zero. Uh, within a struct. And it's just, it, it stood out to me about why we have now such a uh, impactful vulnerability whose fix is literally just initializing a variable and how come 
you know, the compiler didn't complain? How come a, a, a simple fuzzer didn't find this? How come a simple just linting tool didn't find and complain about this? So it's sort of, uh, why can't we have better tools is my, my wraith, you know, shaking fist of rage at this guy uh, after I read this article. That does sound like something a linter should catch, right? And see, I would, I would, that would be within, I obviously haven't written C for a while or haven't, Definitely haven't used linters in C for a while. That would be within the, you know, reasonableness I'd, I'd expect a linter to catch. That is an interesting point. Um, it's funny because I didn't. I, I I heard of this thing last week. I hadn't read this, which is I believe. Well, not believe. This is the original post of it. Um, and I had seen another version on a mm. I don't know, uh, Hackaday, I think, um, where they sort of they had the AB example and they sort of went over it quickly. And I got I'm like, okay, cool, got it. Um, went on about life. And then when I was reading this one this morning, like it starts very sort of, I had forgotten about the, 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 the backstory on it. I'm like, wait, it almost sounds like, is he getting attacked? Right. And, but yeah, that this is for, for those who haven't spent time in this, if you're doing this Unixy thing day in, day out, or right, really any type of operation stuff, right. This is how you'll fre frequently run into things like this. Um, and it's like, you know, one thing doesn't quite look right. And, you know, it's, if you look at the dates he had in there, where are they? Um, it's over months that he's looking at this pattern and you, you're, you're usually going to blow it off. And at some point you're like, okay, what's going on? And then as he started digging in and tracking, so I think that's actually pretty cool. It, it does feel very, very, very real. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, as you were talking about that, Mike, there, um, the, the ability to, to set the default value or the initial value. Um, I was thinking about go and rust and other languages where, you know, mm -hmm. again, this, this type of thing becomes less of a problem. We don't talk about that aspect as much. As we do, um, the memory safety and the other things, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's all sorts of good reasons, I think, to, to moving some of this stuff within reason and in time to, uh, uh, more modern programming languages. Ah, within reason and time. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe we'll we'll send it. Well, we'll set up a, a betting pool with our listeners about what that time frame is going to be, whether it's days, months, years, decades, or centuries. Who knows? Um, I suppose don't we'll be running breath. into. Yeah, don't hold your breath. We'll be running into the what the 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 time the the two to thirty two bit time problem. I've uh, before, before then, um, but I, I, that that's a, a silly tangent. To and a not silly tangent, uh, an article stood out to you. I'd actually read this article, but kind of uh, just my my mind just skipped over it. About um, uh, most orgs would take security bugs over ethical hacking help. So talk yeah. us through why did this one particularly grab you, especially as we're talking about pen testing and things like that. Yeah. Um. A little unfortunate, and you know, part of the reason I, I, I threw it in, it, it's it's um, it's a little. I'll say it's not a super heavy article, right? And it's probably vendor driven. I'm guessing that the research behind it. But That's the reason sure. I want to bring it in, the reason I want to bring it here was to actually just get us all to think about. You know, we, we talk about AppSec here every week, and you should be doing these things and these things. And you know, we had mm. our guest on last hour talking about your CI and your blah 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 blah. blah. Um, and we talk about responsible disclosure and full disclosure and all these type of things, but really end of the day, keep in mind that outside our happy little world here, there's a lot of people that are like, I've got a map by my front door. We're going to hide this underneath there. Uh, and, and that's the way they want to deal with this type of stuff. And sometimes there's <laughs> business reasons for it. You know, either you need to get something else out or it costs or whatever else. But sometimes a lot of times people don't want to admit that they've got, you know, those um, creepy crawlies in the closet. So that's the main thing I brought up here, but just sort of talk through it briefly. 
what we're looking at is um, uh, 65% of organizations surveyed claimed they would want to be seen as infallible. So that's point one. Of those, 64% said they want that they practice a culture of security through obscurity. Basically, you're, you're not going to announce or tell people about vulnerabilities, which you've had. Um, and I think if I go a little further, yeah, 50%, 57% of respondents to this survey um, said that they struggled to create a culture of cybersecurity. And only 26% were very confident that the staff were following security practices. Oh, and the numbers keep going down. 12% of <laughs> departments outside of security and IT make cyber awareness and training a core focus. So I think if I keep going, the numbers keep going. But you, you, you get the point here, right? Is, is um, you know, I brought it up partially because we talk about um, uh, um, uh hack bounties and things like that to defer mm -hmm. uh, vulnerability bounties. And that's sort of part of what they're saying is like, this is, I think this originally came from HackerOne. Uh, and they, they, they were saying like, hey, look, you know, it's, it, it's a good thing to expose this, but it takes a lot of effort to get people to really buy into that. So um, really at the end of the day, the reason I put this in here is just tell people to keep up a good fight and we're, we're making progress. It'd be interesting to see what these numbers look like compared, compared to a few years ago. But um, yeah, that that's that's the the... the well, we can get out of this one for right now and try not to hang our heads too much. <laughs> no, keep keep up the good fight. Uh, roll out FIDO keys or any, you know, FIDO keys for all your developers. I think that would be one of the, the the greatest things you can do in terms of they talk about like making cyber awareness and training a core focus. Just give the give your developers, especially the open source community. We were talking a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago about NPM uh, package owners rolling out Yubi keys. So strong MFA, probably one of the easiest things if we're going to talk about percentages, maybe uh, 100% of developers have you know, using YubiKey type of uh, or FIDO authentication for their MFA would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. I will um, switch to speaking of sort of transparency, though. Um, we do often, or at least I am and to blame for this, pull in articles from the Google security blog. Uh, once again, I grabbed one. This is a little bit older from March 10th. Um, actually, I guess it's not too old. Um, it just feels like it. <laughs> but um, they're talking about what's up with in the wild exploits. And it was just interesting in the sense of there's a transition of attack surfaces. And that's really what I wanted to focus on in the sense of, with the, you know, understandably no longer seeing flash vulnerabilities, but now seeing a lot of Chrome vulnerabilities or Chrome zero days. And I think I'm, I want to be maybe not overly strenuous, but I don't think this is to mean that Chrome is getting more insecure over time. I think this demonstrates that as we get rid of Flash, which was, there was no such thing as a non-critical update for Flash, so we've gotten rid of that. Um, attackers have gone after where is the other big attack surface that lots of people use, and it's the browser. Everybody's using a browser, and that's why WebKit, Firefox, and IE, and of course Chrome is on here, and Chrome clearly has a, a market penetration, and so that's where, the, that's where the attackers are going after. And I think it's just shows that for as much as we were talking about with uh, Farshad in the last uh, segment, you know, you might have a company like HSBC that has a lot of money to invest into tools and to invest into engineering and security teams. Google, of course, has plenty of money that they can do, and they're building secure browsers with good architectures. But we're still humans, we're humans writing code, and that code has errors in it, as demonstrated by vulnerabilities that pop up. So this is not a sense of nihilism, it's just, it's more of a sense just to acknowledge where are the attack surfaces that we have, 
putting on that risk-based hat to think about what should we be protecting and what are different ways we can go after attack classes of the of Chrome. And I think that's maybe the final point I want to make on this. I don't think Chrome is responding to, oh, we just fixed this bug, we're good. They've been looking at how can we rearrange our sandboxing model? How can we do different IPC models and process separation? How can we adopt more fuzzing for example, um, even we were just talking about dirty pipe, you know, there you could be running a uh, kernel fuzzer if you want. I think Google probably running the syscaller uh, uh, fuzzing is probably the one responsible for fuzzing the most out of the kernel. And they do fuzzing on Chrome as well. So this is so I guess the story is it's nice to see this type of transparent discussion. It's nice to see them pointing this out, but I don't think it means that Chrome is insecure. It just means that mm -hmm. securing software is really hard, even when you have a massive budget. So, yeah, um, yeah that's me. So that's and, uh, and over I to think you, John. On that, I think really briefly yeah. on that one, I know we got a bunch of stuff to cover. Um, looking at the, the pretty picture, uh, it, was, <laughs> it was fun to see uh, a flash go away, but I'm guessing that WebKit, I, I, I was just doing a little of the, the Googling while you were typing, um, excuse me, while you were talking. Uh, WebKit also powers Edge, I believe, right? So I don't think that's so much we're seeing uh, some interest does, in yeah. Safari. Um, sorry, say that again? Uh, yeah, Edge is on the, the Chrome, WebKit. Anything on the iOS is using WebKit, but on Edge is Chrome or the okay, Chrome Okay, my engine. bad. Um, yeah. So there, okay, so then it's, 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 that is just iOS or Apple at the top. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it these things are super difficult to do, right? I mean, is there's it'd be I don't know if you know I don't know if top of my head the number of lines in any of the modern browsers. I know it's crazy high, so um, yeah, it's it's <laughs> keep trying. They're doing stuff. I mean, it's not like it's not like people are sitting down and not not like working on this like crazy and trying different ideas as we can, but it's it's still um, lots of work to be done. But let's still keep lots going. Of work. We got other stuff. It does. And I think it does. I, I will make the connection to you. You brought up the, you know, the, the hacker one article about bug bounties. And this is also one of the reasons why Google has such high bug bounties as well, because they want to keep Chrome secure, keep Android secure and, and their, their other ecosystem. And those zero days are worth a lot of money and they reward it um, in that way. So, but we do have a couple bunch of articles. Uh, there was one that I first read through and skipped is like, ah, I'm not quite interested in just yet another zero click flaw, which basically just means no interaction uh, flaw in some widely used UPS devices that can threaten critical infrastructure. And of course, the, um, uh, the, 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 the image for this has, you know, nuclear reactor coolant towers and a bunch of stuff. So it, it sounds scary. I was like, ah, okay, no, not, not a big deal. But then I went back and reread it and there's some nuances that I thought were interesting. So um, at, at a high level, there's a vulnerability here that's um, called TL Storm or, you know, TLS Torm if you want to misunderstand the, the, the naming. It's in the TLS connections that essentially allows an attacker to uh, spoof, inter intercept a connection. And because the application uh, within this uh, UPS device ignores, it doesn't handle uh, TLS errors correctly, you can basically 
complete a successful TLS connection. And once you have that successful TLS connection, you can upload an encrypted firmware that's encrypted by a key secret key that you've a symmetric secret key that you've extracted from another device. And lo and behold, it will say, cool, I had a, I had a correct TLS connection. I've got some firmware that's been encrypted. Uh, I'm going to decrypt it successfully and install it. Boom, attacker has essentially full control over it. Well, two things that came up. One was sign your firmware rather than just using symmetric keys. That probably would have been a little bit more helpful here. But this was kind of a supply chain of supply chain issues. So the vendor for this TLS library, no, so Nano SSL is... Um, from Mocana, um, a name that wasn't familiar to me until I dove into this article. They talk about, um, you know, they, it's a secure TLS implementation for embedded systems, essentially. And I even found from in back in 2009, there was a Black Hat article about a, a big old uh, TLS uh, SSL attack. And uh, one of the, this Mocana, the, about, they were talking about their nano SSL library. They It was a bit marketing saying that we're not vulnerable to this because we use fuzzy <laughs> We know that ASN.1 parsing is tricky, and we use these length strings rather than just C-based length strings, you know, null terminated strings, which ignore the marketing aspect of it. Just it's still nice to see that, yes, even back in 2009, they're doing string handling. They understand ASN.1 parsing is horrible, and uh, they're using fuzzing as part of their SDLC. And they even wrote down in their manual for how to use their library, make sure not to ignore TLS errors. Well. You now have Mocana that's created an, uh, a nicely secure, with a nicely described at least, uh, SDLC around their nano SSL library. Another vendor implementing that library, not checking TLS errors, and now creating this type of uh, problem for everyone who has deployed those devices. So it was sort of that interesting um, uh, third party, fourth party, if you will, I thought of secure software being used insecurely and just why we're going to be talking about supply chain forever, perhaps. I'm uh, I'm getting my Michaela Moroni not impressed meme to uh, share on this one. Um, you know, <laughs> what do you accuse say? Um, Pretty much. I, I've got nothing to add. Next. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> next. Um, so next. So there is a, well, so next I think we'll throw it to you. There's either a couple yeah. articles, either car hacking, a log4j, because you have to mention it once since I, I was the one who brought up supply chain, or a Flaws in package managers themselves. So, so which 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 one should we um, worry about the most here, or I'd be excited um, about the most? Let's see. What was the? So that one's that one's good. That one's so the. Um, I'll I'll rip through at least two of them. The Moz RX eight one for the car nerds um, is fun, just from the point of view of uh, man, how easy it is for this dude to throw some stuff together. And I, I think he's sort of, there's a bit of hand waving going on in this video, but it's a 10 minute video on um, basically from grabbing a few components off eBay. He wanted to hack, a, um, or excuse me, he wanted to tune the uh, ECU in his car. So um, instead of like doing it in your car, you go and you pick up another one fairly cheap. Uh, you have the right components, you know what you're doing. And he's, you know, doing twiddlies on the, the, the keyboard on his laptop. And like, you're seeing like the, the speedometer and the rev, the rev, um, counter actually start bouncing around and stuff. So it's it's sort of fun to see that and, and sort of realize how easy some of these things are to get into. Um, so I posted it really for people who might be interested in, you know, looking for something else to hack or play with. That That's why that's there. Um, 
Log4j, I'm mentioning for a change, just because I thought this was interesting, 40% of Log4j downloads are vulnerable versions of the software, according to um, the Maven Central folks at Sonotype. And, and the reason I really linked that there is I think what's going on is they're talking about the Maven Centrals, the, 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 um, mm -hmm. not so much the Sonotype repo, but the re how people are using those repos. Um, a thought experiment of like, how, how do you, would it be within the realm of um, sanity for a vendor like that to come out and say, if we see the SHA for a vulnerable version, a known vulnerable bad version of a package which has been around for a while, we're going to blacklist it or block it? I, I know it's going to cause builds to break, and I know some people probably still need it, but how do you, how do you push people to get that stuff fixed? Um, so that was sort of the interesting part of that. Um, and then let's hit the third one really quickly. Uh, if you're using a package manager like most of us, these are mostly JavaScript package managers, but um, someone went and found a bunch of vulnerabilities, a bunch of different ones. So uh, uh, argument injection, um, untrusted search paths, uh, um, a, a mixture of different things. So basically, you know, um, Composer, Bundler, Bower, Poetry, Yarn, PN, PM, PIP, and PIPENV. Um, if you're using those, it's, it's time to patch. If you're interested in, in security for one of those languages, uh, you might find some interesting patches in there um, now. But yeah, it, it, it's someone someone doesn't know how to do this right. They, they could have had like, you know, their name in the news for a week, but keep putting out a different one every day. And they, they announced a bunch of them at once. So um, thank you. And next time, keep up and play in the security industry the way we do this right. That's our, <laughs> go on. Yeah. I no, think I you think have one more. Well, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I've got one more, but you rattle off the list of the comp composer, bundler, et cetera. All those, those are running on your CI CD pipeline, possibly oh. with higher privileges. Um, so course. it just kind of points out to like, it's sort of important. That's where, when we're, you know, that's, that's, that's where you want to be focused on your security. Yeah. So, um, um, anyway, um, I will try to sneak in one last article, um, yes. a telegram harm reduction for users in Russia and Ukraine. So I had, um, I've uh, one or two episodes ago, I also threw in another article that we get, didn't get a chance to talking about events in Ukraine and talking about if there is an AppSec um, angle to it. And that's only because I don't want to try and center AppSec on this type of environment. But um, situation, but here is where it comes in important. And here is the, the this article speaks to me in the sense of AppSec as creating secure features or understanding how features can be misused, abused, and what the what the different types of threat models are behind them. And that's very different from the AppSec in the sense of the ASVS, the OWASP top 10, just the technical implementation. Does your did you make your linter happy, your SCA, your SAS DAS tool happy? Ignore all those aspects and look at something like this and say, if our security advice is don't use Telegram, or just more generally, don't use X because I would never do use X because I'm a security mm. purist. You're not helping anyone. So that's really why I like the both the specifics of this. So here's how to use Telegram securely and things to be aware of, but just the more general aspect of how do we help users who are going to make either decisions that we wouldn't make ourselves, but they make them because that's where their peers are within messaging apps or because mm -hmm. this is simply what's available to them. So that's really why I wanted to highlight this as a really good lesson for uh, threat modeling as well. There's probably an interesting white paper or talk there around um, 
the interaction between security and network effects. So network effects is a sort of a startup concept of if I can make my product be not just cool and people want to use it, but that it has the ability to share with my friends and then like it expands through a network like that. It's a very sticky thing, a really great way to grow your product if you can do that. But at exactly like, you know, the example is where you're just saying is my friends are using it. Okay, I can't just tell you to stop, right? Like I have WhatsApp right. on my phone, everyone in the US is like, what in God's name are you doing with that? Dude, I talk to people around the world. Um, and it, it's that same type of thing. I'm not going to, I have tried in the past. I was a little more original. I used to say, I can't talk to you in WhatsApp. You have to go to, you know, one of these, these four or five others, but really that, that doesn't work. That doesn't fly. You have to be this. It's the whole security versus usability thing. Um, which is my, 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 my life right now, but, uh, that's, it's, it's a good example of it. So it's, it's cool that they put this out there. Um, EFF is always great at this type of thing. So, um, hopefully it helps people. Yeah, hopefully it helps people. And I guess the the final thing there I would say is, you know, if, is you're part of a security team, if you have a trust and safety team in your organization as well, that's also the type of thing where there's a really good collaboration potentially to build up to understand just those trade-offs like John was just describing there at the end too. Um, and speaking of the end, I think we've come to the end of this particular segment. Um, uh, although I'll give you one last chance, John, anything on the, the top of your mind or any teasers we want for the rest of the month about stuff you've been uh, thinking about for um, articles to cover, discussions we could have with, with our, our friends in Discord? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, so I'm not sure if there's something oh, on mind. That's quick. How quick is my, my mail going to search? Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's, you know, there's a fun one we didn't talk about. Uh, um, Facebook actually has a, a module up for doing code verification. Um, so basically, if you've got something running in your browser, how do you know that that's the correct version? Like, say, React is an example. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of a fun thing out there. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I think we're really enjoying having, thanks to the um, uh, Security Weekly team, we now have the ability to see um, YouTube, Twitch, and Discord all on Discord where we hang out. So we get to actually talk to more of you. So um, uh, really enjoying that and hoping to see more of you engaging with us more often. Absolutely. Please engage with us more often. Give us a chat. Let us know what's the what kind of articles you like and what kind of articles you'd like to see perhaps less of and more of. Um, but we always want to see more of you, John. So thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks to listeners for joining us as well. And uh, please do subscribe. Give us a like. Check out the show notes. And if you're going to be doing some car hacking on that Mazda, also go listen to some Synthwave Outrun like Redline from Laserhawk. And with that, we'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly. <laughs>